You're listening to the Co-Main Event Podcast. And now your hosts, Ben Folks and Chad Dundas. That's right. You're listening to another episode of the Co-Main Event Mixed Martial Arts Podcast. I'm Chad Dundas. That's Ben Folks. We're both senior writers in MMA for The Athletic, and we meet here every single week to chop up all the prominent, newsworthy, and hilarious happenings in the world of mixed martial arts. Ben, how you doing this week? I'm doing all right. Waking up to just a, another week of this bullshit. Here we go. Back again, every day, pretty much the same. You know, um, I feel like, as you like to say, we squeezed a lot of living into the last week in mixed martial arts. We sure Just, did. It, it feels, to me at least, like Tony Ferguson and Justin Gaethje fought about three months ago. And I'm kind of trying to, I feel like, to catch my breath right now and rework my just concept of the passage of time. Yeah. Yeah. No, I agree with you. And as such, we have an awful lot to talk about here on this episode of the Co-Main Event Podcast. We're going to be motoring through as much of the uh, of the, the current happenings as we possibly can. So I think we should probably get right to it. First, though, I would ask, are you guys patrons of the CME Patreon page? If you're not, you should be starting right now. Basically, it's more of the sweet, sweet CME content you crave, like a lot more. For starters, there's the Friday Power Hour podcast, which is basically just another hour every single week of me and Ben talking about fights. Then there's the Wednesday live chat, where you guys get to ask us any questions that your little heart desires, and we spend yet another hour answering them. If that's not good enough, There's also our special movie club podcasts. This week, we're watching The Nice Guys, starring Ryan Gosling, Russell Crowe, and Margaret Qualley. All that goes down over at the Patreon page, patreon.com slash co-main event. Get over there today and sign up to support the show. Keep the CME totally ad-free and the discourse royally unfettered. It would mean the world to us if you would. We got three rounds, as usual this week in the co-main event podcast. In round number one, like a wily old cat, Al Sarovareem just keeps landing on his feet. On Saturday, he spoiled UFC on ESPN 8's feel-good story by beating Walt Harris and still managed to seem like a pretty good dude while doing it. And in round number two, the UFC's weird week-long stay in Jacksonville is now over. Did they pull it off? Probably depends on who you ask. And in round number three, have you guys looked at the fight cards for UFC 250 and Fight Night 176? Not much on there. Who's going to fight on these cards? And where are they going to be? I guess I should mention we got music this week from our guy Simeo, music producer uh, from uh, from Stockholm, aka podcast listener Alfred Larson. If you like more, if you if you like what you hear from him on the show, you can check out more over at SoundCloud.com/Simeo. That's S E E M I O. We got all that coming for you. Plus, are you fucking kidding me and just saying stuff? But first, like we always do about this time. Let's do a little bit of listener mail. Listener mail. First piece of listener mail this week comes to us from Zach, the prosecutor. Oh, who wow. writes, Yeah, I know, right? That's kind of intimidating. Writes, okay, fine. I'll let myself imagine a world where John Dwight Jones enters the octagon against Francis Ngannou. A world where he doesn't mow down a field of nuns while driving high on amphetamine or some other tragic turn that followed him to Albuquerque. 
while we last left when we last left Mr. Bones, he was having a hell of a time fighting a, a game Dominic Reyes who seemed to find a great deal of success by hitting Jones hard. It seemed that getting hit frequently may be the kryptonite to the Jones mystique. Francis hits harder than a, any human being ought to be allowed to, so I guess discourse. Is Francis the man to finally crumble John Jones John Bones Jones? Uh, the Kenosha King showed in Jacksonville that there's a sizable power difference between heavyweight and light heavyweight. Does Jones have the chops to evade those hits long enough to take out the big man? Now, Ben, this is a this is a recent development here. This started last week when uh, John Jones and Francis Ngannou started beefing over there on social media. And I have to be honest with you that much like Zach, the prosecutor, having unlocked the part of my mind that will allow me to even consider the reality of John Jones fighting fighting Francis Ngannou, I sit here today having a hard time trying to walk that back. Like after it was put out there, after these two guys spoke this thing into being, I have a hard time taking my mind off it. I have a hard time considering anything else. And I say this as a guy who, what, like 10 days ago, just published a story on The Athletic, basically begging the UFC to get Francis Ngannou a second shot at the UFC heavyweight title already. Now I'm obsessed about Jones versus Ngannou and I can't get it out of my mind. But at the same time, I think the real question here before we even talk about the nuts and bolts of how this thing would actually go down is, are these dudes even serious or are they just playing? Yeah. Well, I mean, for one thing, I know what you mean about once you start to think of it as a real possibility, it becomes impossible to go back to the way you used to live. Like, it, it reminds me once when I brought my daughter when she was really young to a party where they had a slip and slide set up outside. Like, she didn't even know that that was a thing that existed. And the moment she saw it, she was just like, anything else that you might want to try to talk to me about or try to get me to do, that doesn't exist for me anymore. All that remains in my world right now is a fervent desire to get on that slip and slide immediately in whatever I happen to be wearing at the time. And I, I feel kind of similarly about this fight once you start to think of the matchup, especially when you think of it under the current circumstances. We talked about this a little bit on the Power Hour on Friday, but when you think about the the problems such as they are that both those guys and both those divisions are kind of facing right now, this seems like a great solution to both of them because Francis Ngannou is sitting around waiting to find out what's going to happen with the heavyweight title. We're waiting to find out if DC and Stipe are going to get that rubber match scheduled, and if so, when. And then would you have to wait you know, maybe until late summer or early fall for that fight to happen and then wait a few more months after that for the winner to be ready to face Francis Ngannou? It's a long time for the big man to sit around. He would probably be trying – like the UFC might be trying to entice, entice him into another contender fight. We've seen how that shit kind of goes. Meanwhile, you got John Jones sitting over there, just beat Dominic Reyes, and we're talking about okay, what what are we going to do next with this guy, uh, Jan Blahovich? We're going to do a, a rematch uh, with Dominic Reyes. None of those things really set anybody's hair on fire, especially John Jones, who doesn't seem like he wants to do the Reyes rematch at all. And then you got this idea that he might go up to heavyweight and have a just for kicks kind of fight with Big Franny and Ganu. And like you said, like like Zach the Prosecutor laid out here, there are all these unknowns about that kind of matchup for both guys at this point. And it's a lot of fun just to think about, and it seems like it would do huge pay-per-view numbers to do it. And it also seems like neither one of those guys is just going to do it for – or at least John Jones is not gonna, just going to do it for currently contracted money. 
He wants you to pay him to go up to heavyweight, which is a totally reasonable point, a totally reasonable negotiating tactic. You want me to do something other than be the world's best light heavyweight, the best light heavyweight in history? Fine. Pay me more and I will do more. And that makes perfect sense to me. So I, I don't blame him at all for using that. And yet when you hear Dana White talk about it, he's saying, oh, I don't know if those guys really want that fight. That's what he said after Saturday night's event at the post-fight press conference, which is, as we all know, is Dana White speak for they want more money and I don't want to pay more money. Yeah. But it, with the situation the UFC is facing now, you're looking at a a good long while without being able to have fans at events, which means you're losing out on the live gate money, which you know wasn't a huge piece of the UFC's financial puzzle already. Like I think there was a story on Bloody Elbow. I think uh, looking at a, a Moody's report that said that in 2019, live gate revenue accounted for about 12 or a little less than 12 percent of the UFC's revenue in 2019. But for a big fight, like a big pay-per-view, you might be doing 4 or $5 million at the gate. You're going to lose out on all that money for the foreseeable future. It would really be nice to sell some pay-per-views. Doesn't it seem like John Jones versus Francis Ngannou is the kind of shit that would sell the hell out of some pay-per-views? Yeah, I mean, I agree with you on Dana White. Like, he gives this answer at the UFC on ESPN 8 post-fight press conference, where, as you said, he was basically like, there's a world of difference between these guys beefing on Twitter and actually getting a, a, a fight signed in the cage, which which – historically speaking is the UFC's way of saying like, man, we don't know if we can, if we're going to want to get into this, like negotiating, we don't know if we're going to be willing to pay these guys the money that they want. And like, maybe if you are dealing with a cash strapped COVID-19 reality situation, maybe the UFC doesn't want to do this thing where it's like paying guys big money to have super fights. But at the same time, isn't Francis Ngannou against John Jones, maybe the biggest money fight that you have on the roster? Like, all you have to do is put one or both of those guys on SportsCenter one time, and the people who know who John Jones is, which I think is a lot of sports fans at this point, will get one look at Francis Ngannou and see some of his highlights, see the Alistair Overeem knockout, see the Biggie Boy knockout, you know, see Cain Velasquez, see Junior, see Junior Dos Santos. And I think everyone is going to want to tune in for this fight. Like, I wouldn't be surprised if this if this kind of fight is, you know, sets the record for the biggest selling UFC pay-per-view of all time. And so, like, if you just speak financially about it, like, my, doesn't it seem like you could pay these guys a shitload of money and still make it an unbelievable profit if you were the UFC? Yes. Yes. So good. But it, so, yeah. I, I don't – I mean, I can't tell how much of this is just – inertia on the ufc's part like this is how you've always done it that you're resistant to re-entering into these negotiations every single time every single time somebody proposes a big fight you want them to fight for their contracted money you have them under a contract you feel like you, you shouldn't have to renegotiate with them every single time and how much of it is just like well we don't have to put together a huge mega fight in order to make money in order to be profitable like we, we have this guarantee from ESPN, especially right now. We're one of the only sports back so far. Uh, we, can we can put together John Jones versus you know just a, a next-in-line kind of guy at 205, and we're going to make some money. It's going to be profitable for us. We don't have to come out of our pockets with the more put more money on the table for John Jones to agree to a fight, especially if you can just get Dana White to go out there and whenever he's asked about it, be like, hey, look, those guys are just talking to you and saying they want the fight, but they don't really want the fight, which what he means is they don't want it for the kind of money that we're offering them. And that just – that feels like it's been standard operating procedure for the UFC for so long that they'd be 
resistant to change as they often are and that why why mess with this system if you feel like it's working for you the people who are reaping most of the profits yeah uh make the fight ufc yeah just make it give give us what we want god damn it just give us what we want next question this week comes go go ahead no no, no go ahead all right, next question this week comes to us from Patrick Milder, who writes, Nate Landwehr versus Darren Elkins. Nate Landho Landwehr putting his arms straight up, straight down, one, one hand behind his back, and screaming for Dana while acting like Elkins' punches were doing nothing. How pumped should we be about this ute? My cousin Vinny pronunciation. Nice. Uh, th- this was a hell of a fight, Ben, between two dudes who went out there, both of them with their uh, nicknames tattooed across their chests on the preliminary card of UFC on ESPN eight on Saturday night, Nate Landwehr, uh, who looks like he's about 45. Um, <laughs> but I assume is much younger than that. Uh, eventually pulls out the unanimous decision over Darren Elkins, which is a big win for him. But, uh, I don't know. Did you find the, uh, Nate, I guess Nate Landwehr's antics in this fight, did you find them uh, annoying or or did they did you like it? Like I, I was kind of put off by it, but I know a lot of people uh, thought it was awesome. Well, I don't know if I would say that I thought it was awesome, but he was bringing some excitement both with what he was doing from a fighting perspective and what he was doing as a showman. He's 31, by the way. Just I think, you know, some hairlines will make you look a little older than you actually are. Also – Talking about two guys going out there with their nicknames tattooed on their respective chests, beating each other bloody, you know, or ma- mainly Darren Elkins being beaten bloody. His blood just spattered all over the cage, all over Landwehr. I felt like, okay, we are MMAing so hard right now, just in all ways. The nicknames on the chests, all the kind of stuff, the the really super hyped post-fight interview from Nate Landwehr. We MMAed the hell out of that. 15 minutes and i don't know i i wasn't against it i I do wonder like okay for one thing if i'm fighting darren elkins with darren elkins reputation for being able to come back late in a fight and just being damn near impossible to finish i'm not celebrating until i wake up the next day yeah like (laughs) that's that's i will not feel comfortable being like okay i've definitely beaten darren elkins until at least 15 minutes after the fight is over because you saw him even in this fight where Landwehr was kind of showboating a little bit and darren elkins is still coming and every once in a while like in the, the third round even darren elkins would land a punch and you could see nate Landwehr kind of go okay that actually did that actually did kind of hurt like i'm, <laughs> I'm gonna get serious here again for a minute i mean i think you try this against some of the the division's other fighters and you run into a whole lot of trouble real quickly but a guy who brings that kind of excitement, uh, that's that's kind of shit we've been saying we want, right? So I don't know how we can get too upset about it. Yeah, Nate the Train Landwehr, coming straight out of Clarksville, Tennessee, had been on a seven-fight win streak fighting mostly overseas in M1 uh, in recent years. He lost his UFC debut to Herbert Burns, who I believe is the brother of Gilbert Burns, in January. Comes back now to nab his first UFC win over Darren Elkins here. If you look at his sure dog, uh fight finder photo he is actually it looks like it's from m1 he's wearing m1 gloves but he's actually pointing he's pointing at the nickname where he has it tattooed on Doesn't his chest miss it. so make sure you got it yeah for a, for a few minutes during this fight i thought we were going to get a bingo uh where the fighters would both have their t- their nicknames tattooed on their chests and then their names tattooed across their back because Nate Landwehr has his last name tattooed across his back. And Darren Elkins also has a back tattoo, but it's just like a, a weird 
tribal design. It wasn't actually his name. So just a little bit of disappointment there for me. But uh, yeah, man, I agree. Darren, or I mean, Nate Landwehr seems like he might be uh, somebody to watch that, you know, guy goes out there and gets his first UFC win. We got to let's slow play it a little bit. Like, let's wait and see how this guy does moving forward. But yeah, man, he, he could be a guy, capital G guy. I feel like I need to know more about what the experience was like for a guy from Clarksville, Tennessee, to go over there and fight an M1 Global in like Kazakhstan and Russia and stuff. Because that, I could see how that might be a little bit of a culture shock at first. Well, you know, Nate Landwehr gives off a very DTW vibe or DFW. He seems like he's down for whatever to me. Seems like he will run into very few situations that he's not going to make make the most out of. Okay, fair this point. Next, next next question this week comes from. Let me make sure I get this get this right. Don't ask, don't tail maze. So nice. it appears Ben that we are making a Clinton era gaze in the military reference with the name of heavyweight preliminary fighter Don Tail Mays from Saturday's UFC event. You know what? That's that's somebody who. Saw an opportunity, went for it, and delivered under a deadline. Dante Mays lost the first fight of the night to Rodrigo Nascimento via second-round submission. So there's that. Here's what he writes. I was enjoying Barbosa versus Ige, and after 15 minutes, there is zero doubt that Edson won. Still, the jury decided other words. I hear lots of comments saying, quote, it was a bad decision, but not a robbery. What does this mean? It feels like you are being screwed by incompetent judges, but it's okay because they did not have bad intentions. If we keep on seeing these dreadful decisions, why won't the UFC do something? Now, we got this question. We also got one from the Cheeseburger Walrus, our old pal, basically about the, you know, a few of the kind of uh, unexpected or weird decisions and close fights that we got at this event in particular. He writes, overall thoughts on judging this past week in Jacksonville, Cheeto Vera, Angela Hill, Michelle Watterson, and more all missed out on half their paychecks. Justified? Please discourse. So um, I think, first of all, I kind of wanted to talk about Edson Barbosa going down to featherweight and fighting a very game Dan Ige, ultimately losing a split decision. But like, Ben, what did you think about this fight? Like, it was very close. Obviously, Dan Ige had more volume than Edson Barbosa did. But this was one of those situations where when Edson Barbosa hit Dan Ige once, it seemed to have the equivalent of Dan Ige hitting Edson Barbosa about eight times. So it was just one of these situations where the power uh, differential was so pronounced that it seemed like Edson Barbosa was going to get the nod, even though he just by the numbers, got outstruck by Dan Ige throughout this fight. Yeah, well, I also thought that Edson Barboza won this fight, but it was close enough that I can't call it a robbery. And I think one of the things that you get into, uh, like, I understand the question, like, hey, how do you, what does that mean to say, like, I thought this guy won, but it's not quite a robbery. I guess it's because we feel like we have seen some major robberies in MMA judging in the past where you look at it and you just go, I can't understand how a reasonable person applies these rule, these judging criteria in this way and arrives at this conclusion. I just – I don't know what they were looking at and I don't know what they thought they were seeing and I don't know how they arrived at that decision. And this was not one of those fights because I can see how you could look at this at times and see just through activity – that maybe Ige is winning some of these rounds. Like the second round I think is a good example because Ige seems to be doing more and being more active and getting more done for most of the second round. And then he gets hit hit with that knee to deliver basically and gets dropped. And that seems like a significant moment that comes near the end of the round. But you do have to weigh 
how do you balance out you know one guy is kind of winning for three minutes and then one guy is really winning for like 45 seconds so you know i understand how reasonable people might disagree on how to weight those two things and then they go into the third round and it's pretty close so I can understand, I guess, like how a judge might look at this one and see it the other way. And and that was the case for most of these fights because I felt like the same way on Saturday night watching these fights, it just seemed like, well, whatever I think happened, the judges are going to say the other thing because yeah. I thought Angela Hill deserved to win her fight. You know, I, I again, I wouldn't say that it was a total robbery, but that one seemed a little more clear to me. And uh, the Chido Vera and Song Yidong fight, I mean – it looked to me like Song Yudong was not expecting to hear his name called there at the end. Although I can still, again, like I can see how you see that fight for him. And I, I think that maybe when you hear people talking about that, like it was, I disagree with the decision, but not a robbery. It's because we're placing it in the larger context of bad decisions in MMA. Yeah. Yeah, there were a string of judges' decisions all week in Jacksonville, I would say going all the way back to Donald Cerrone versus Anthony Pettis, which as you said, feels like it happened about three months ago, that turned out differently than I expected. Like there were a bunch of fights this week where I thought one person was going to win and then the judge's verdict went the other way. But at the same time, they were all such close fights that, yeah, again, I'm not going to uh, fault the judges there or, or, uh, or, you know, cry robbery or anything like that. I think that the fact of the matter is like, no matter what you do to judging, no matter what you do to scoring in this sport, you're always going to have close fights and you're always going to have fights that some people think one fighter won and some people think the other fighter won. And so there's always going to be, you know, some manner of dissension in the ranks. There's always going to be debate and arguments about who deserved to win these fights. And all these were close. I think some of them were heartbreakers. Uh, but I think especially maybe Edson Barbosa was probably tough for him to lose this fight to Dan Ige because if there were questions about how Edson Barbosa was going to handle this cut to featherweight, if his power would translate, if his speed would translate, if he would have the gas tank to go the distance in a fight after making this this weight cut down to 145, I feel like he answered all those questions in the affirmative. Yeah. Like, he looked good. Like he didn't even throw any spinning stuff in this fight. He just went out there and kind of fought a technical – uh, you know, good fight against Dan Ige and seemed on the verge of, of finishing him a couple times. So like all of the questions were answered correctly and in the in the affirmative for Edson Barbosa, except for the ultimate judge's decision where he lost the fight. So I can imagine that being a pretty rough one for him to to lose. Yeah. Uh, how about this question? Can we read this next question from Rob Garside? Because I, yeah. that makes a point along judging that I think is an interesting one I hadn't considered. Yeah, Rob Garside wrote in to say, just listen to your latest episode and the conversation about the fighters hearing the broadcasters was interesting. I'm wondering, though, does this also work on the broadcasters influencing the judges? I don't know how much more of a factor this will be uh, than a live crowd, but I could see how certain commentators who are fond of forming a narrative on the fight early could sway some judges' discourse. And yeah, I, I also had not thought about this, but like, yeah, if the fighters can hear UFC commentators in the cage while they're fighting, then clearly the ringside judges will be able to hear them as well. And I do wonder if that could sway, you know, maybe in a close fight or a close round where you're wondering, uh, you know, which which way to to score it. And then you've got a UFC broadcaster uh, talking about how one guy's leg kicks were so effective. Maybe that gets you yeah. to write down a, a 10 in his column and a 9 in the other column. I don't know. Yeah, well, and I think we've all had the experience at this point, right, where you watch a fight once live on the broadcast and you think – one person won it and then you go back later and you watch it without the commentary you watch it on mute or something and it seems different to you 
Like the commentary can definitely shape the way that you see the fight. And as if the judges are going to be sitting there right at cage side and the commentator is going to be there and everybody can hear everything, then there's no way for them not to hear it seems. Yeah, and you know what I saw I brought up uh elsewhere when people were watching this NASCAR race that that went on over the weekend uh where obviously they were another one of the first sports to come back but they seem to be doing a, a kind of a different style broadcast than the UFC did. Obviously if you're if you're commentating a NASCAR race it's not like you're down there on the track you are doing it from some remove probably in the stadium elsewhere but like I think that they were they were kind of broadcasting this remotely like the commentators weren't maybe even at the uh, the racetrack. And, and you, I saw some people on online wondering if the UFC could or should do the same thing. We're like, do we really need to even have these broadcasters at cage side? Now, I don't know about judges. Judges, you might run into some kind of commission, uh, you know, statute where the judges have to be at ringside. I don't know if it, you would probably have to make a special new rule for them to put them, you know, elsewhere, just watching the fights on monitors or whatever. But it feels to me like if we're really going to do a safe environment here, like I don't even know that we need these people at cage side at all. Like maybe you just need the fighters in their camps and the referee. Yeah. Yeah, that could be. Um, you're right, though. I mean, it, it does seem like in a few different ways we're finding out that not only does this look and feel different to do these events during this time, but it also introduces elements that we just hadn't considered that were never issues when we had live crowds. And I mean, it makes sense to kind of reevaluate and think about how we feel about that going forward. Cause we might be doing this for a while. Next question this week comes to us from Trevor Finch, who writes another solid win for my guy, Drew Dober and ranking in the top 15. What do you think of the Paul Felder call out? Felder is ranked number six and highly experienced too much, too quick. Now, Trevor really wanted us to answer this question, Ben. He sent it to us like three times okay. over the last week. So I figured we'd throw it in there. Drew Dober, we've got to go back to Wednesday for this one over there at, uh, at the fight night event in Jacksonville. He beats Alexander Hernandez. Uh, second round TKO, Drew Dober's third consecutive TKO victory in the UFC. He's won six of his last seven. Uh, as Trevor Finch points out, this one gets him ranked in the actual UFC rankings. He calls out Paul Felder, who obviously a uh, UFC broadcaster, kind of a well-known guy and ranked in the top 10. What do you think about this call out for Drew Dober, who is a kid who seems like he could be somebody in the lightweight division, but again, in this kind of stacked maybe the most competitive division in mixed martial arts, probably at this point running neck and neck with featherweight in contention to be the most competitive division in the entire sport. But you got so many guys, sometimes it feels like if you're a Drew Dober type, you got to win, you know, seven, eight fights in a row before anyone even starts paying attention to you. Is it the right thing to do to call out a well-known but perhaps beatable guy like Paul Felder? Yeah, no, I think it's a smart move on his part. I think it's a, that call out makes sense for a lot of reasons. So like we said before, I was saying on the Friday's uh, Power Hour that I think Drew Dober, Drew Dober is one of the most underrated guys out there, especially in the lightweight division right now. And when you're trying to look at how am I going to craft a path both up the ranks in the division but also into, into the minds of fans and media people in the sport, like how do I get from where I am to where I want to be in those terms, calling out a guy like Paul Felder is not a bad idea because you probably – you're not going to get one of the really top guys in the division. Like you're not going to be Drew Dober out here and be like, all right, I beat Alexander Hernandez and I want Tony Ferguson next. Like you're just, you're not going to get it. And so you're wasting your time there. You're wasting your call out opportunity there. But calling out a guy like Paul Felder. Okay. Maybe you'll get it. It stylistically would be a kind of a good matchup for you, a, a, a exciting matchup 
that plays along to some of your strengths, but also the matchmakers for the UFC would look at it and be like, these guys would probably deliver a pretty fun fight to watch. Plus, people pay more attention to Paul Felder's fights because he is so known and respected as a UFC commentator. So if you can get that guy in the cage with you and you win that fight, that means more than it would to beat another guy who has a similar ranking just because people are going to pay more attention to it. So I think it's in all those ways, a smart move on Drew Dober's part and kind of at the upper limit of what is feasible for him in terms of like calling somebody out and actually getting that fight. All right. Last question this week. We'll do Tom Hughes who writes in, it was great seeing the UFC recognizing Kevin Randleman and adding him to the hall of fame. No lie. I cried. I never got to meet Kevin and that makes me sad. He seemed so positive and full of life no matter what was happening in the cage or ring. I'd love to hear any Randleman anecdotes you'd care to share. Keep up the hard work and stay safe. This was a good a good selection by the UFC, I think, this year, Ben, to put Kevin Randleman, the former heavyweight champion who passed away in 2016 at the age of 44, into the Hall of Fame. Clearly, you could see how emotional it made Another former heavyweight champion and Hall of Famer, Mark Coleman, who was good buddies with Kevin Randleman, uh, when they made the announcement, he kind of got choked up. It looked like they're in the crowd. Um, I never really got to meet Kevin Randleman personally, and I don't think that I interviewed him. He was a little bit before my time, although clearly a guy who you know fought in a bunch of big organizations, fought in the UFC, fought in Pride, fought in Strike Force. Uh, a couple of times there towards the end of his career. But he is a guy who clearly made a big impact inside the cage. One of the most athletic wrestlers to come along at this time clearly has the uh, the highlight of him dropping Fedor right on his head during their fight over there in Pride. And like Randleman was a guy who like brought a lot of physical skills to the table, a guy who had a lot of success in MMA and like a guy who was uh, who was maybe underestimated in the long run just in terms of how influential he was perhaps in in bringing or getting convincing other wrestlers who had seen what he could do to come over and, and fight in MMA and you know that that's kind of ground and pound style of fighting so Kevin Randleman uh, a guy that I think most people represent or rem- remember fondly frankly in this sport who who uh, obviously passed away at a young age yeah, I, I mean, I, I met him once briefly, I think, in Las Vegas and, and interviewed him a time or two. And he always did come across as a, a really warm and charismatic guy. Uh, I remember, too, out there in Vegas for a while, the the guys in Vegas back in the Extreme Couture days when that was really a, a heyday for uh, like a lot of fighter, fighters flocking to Vegas and that whole scene there to train and everything. And they used to speak really highly of, of Randleman having him around. Um, I... I also remember, do you remember, I think it was like in 2009 or 10 when Kevin Randleman got married and uh, it was, I I remember from the blogs and uh, pictures and stuff at the time, it was like the event for MMA luminaries. Like if you were somebody, you got invited to Kevin Randleman's wedding and you'd see all these pictures show up and, you know, MMA fighters super dressed up going to Kevin Randleman's uh, wedding and it was like a, just seemed like an awesome party and it was also a sign of like, that kind of era of MMA was a special era that we remember in a certain way now. And at the time when everybody was living through it, you know, you couldn't quite tell exactly what it was, but it was like, that was the event to be at for like, everybody wanted to go to Kevin Randleman's wedding because everybody loved Kevin Randleman. Everybody wanted to, to think that Kevin Randleman liked them enough to invite them to the wedding. Uh, and I think that that's one of the things that you can kind of tell something about a, a fighter or a personality in this sport, not just like the wins and the losses and whether they had a title and the, the things we usually look at as benchmarks for how they were in this sport, but like how they're thought of by their peers. Because there are a lot of really good fighters out there who 
aren't terribly well liked just by the people who got to know them or got to share gym space with them and things like that. And that tells you something. And then there are the, the fighters like who had great careers like Kevin Randleman and people also loved him. And uh, it's, that's not as common, I think, as, as maybe people would assume. Yeah. Well, that's going to do it for this week's listener mail. If you have a question, comment, or concern that you would like to air to the podcast in future weeks, you know how to do it. You go to the website, comainevent.com, and click the link in the top right-hand corner of the screen that says email the podcast. That'll get you in touch with us. We got a lot of great emails this week. Uh, we want to keep that going. So if you have questions or comments for the podcast, please send them to us. Uh, while you're there, you can sign up for the Breakfast of Champions newsletter. That comes out every Friday morning to catch you up on the news and notes that we miss on days that we're not recording the podcast. Stuff always happens. News always breaks. The newsletter itself is short. It's informative. We would love to tell you it's funny. And if you don't like it, it's really easy to unsubscribe. As for right now, though, we are going to go ahead and get started with round number one. Ben, Alistair Overeem takes the cage for his heavyweight fight against Walt Harris at UFC on ESPN 8, 20 minutes or so before the clock's about to strike to signal the beginning of his 40th birthday. Clearly a guy who's been in the game for a long time in Alistair Overeem. In this particular fight, he weathers an early storm from Walt Harris. Uh, probably could have been stopped, to be honest with you, some some hands-off refereeing, some laissez-faire refereeing from Dan Mergliata in this fight ultimately works out in Alistair Overeem's favor. He comes back with a head kick, left hook combo, floors Walt Harris early in the second, and then gets on top of him and just kind of whittles away until Mergliata has to step in to stop this thing three minutes into the second round. There's a bunch of different interesting topics, different ways that we could go with this. I do want to talk about Walt Harris. I do want to talk about the uh, overt role that his recent terrible family tragedy played in, in leading up to this fight and on fight night of the broadcast of this, of this event. Let's talk first though about Alistair Overeem just for a couple minutes though. Like I said, a guy who just turned 40 years old and a guy who seemingly has been in the game forever. One of the things that strikes me about Alistair Overeem, Ben, is that he's been through more adversity maybe than we expected when he first showed up in the UFC back in 2011, just looking like a world beater, looking like an absolute a tyrannical force in this division, beats Brock Lesnar at UFC 141 in his promotional debut, then of course immediately has a, a failed drug test, loses two in a row, and from that on, he kind of has an up and down UFC career, maybe more up and down than we expected. But I would also say, man, it just seems like Alcer over him, Every single time you start thinking maybe he's out of it or maybe we've seen the best from him, he just keeps landing on his feet. Man, it seems like he has lived lives upon lives in this sport. And here he is hanging around near the top of the heavyweight division at 40 years old, if not for this last second loss to Jarzino Rosenstruck in a fight that Overeem was pretty much winning up to that point. He would be on a four-fight win streak right now. We would probably be talking about him, you know, as maybe second only to Francis Ngannou in terms of being a number one contender for the winner of Stipe Miocic versus Daniel Cormier. Just kind of amazing longevity for Alistair Overeem. And I would also say a guy who maybe unexpectedly has kind of matured into being an elder statesman in this division. Yeah. You know, you want to talk about lives on lives in this sport. 
Alistair Overeem had like three different careers worth of stuff before he even signed with the UFC. It's amazing when you think about it. Like he had all that time over there in, well, first of all, like uh, a bunch of fights in like rings over there in, in Europe and Netherlands, uh, but then shows up in pride as just a, a beanpole light heavyweight has a whole career arc while fighting for pride. Uh, then kind of switches his focus at times to, to K1 uh, was a strike force champion was that time when he was the uber ream exclusively fighting pretty much in japan and uh, as questions grew about his ballooning physique and the source of that then signs with the ufc and has then had like a couple different careers inside the ufc it seems it, clearly this is a guy who really loves this though like just to do this for this long and he doesn't seem like he is eager to go at all like that's to, to maintain that kind of interest and passion for this sport after two decades of just the, the ups and the downs and the physical punishment and having your face split open and all that kind of stuff and to still just be excited about getting in there and doing it that's kind of amazing to me that's pretty uncommon yeah 92 professional fights by his own count between kickboxing and mixed martial arts for Alistair Overeem. You know, I think he's always been kind of like an understated dry guy when you talk to him. Like clearly a smart guy, but like he has this and I don't know if it's if it's like cultural or just the way he comes across speaking English, but he has this very kind of like dry wit, understated style, very kind of uh uh monotone almost but soft-spoken. And I think like when he first came into the UFC and he had, he had done this thing where he obviously had suddenly gotten enormous and had been the strike force heavyweight champion, but had basically gone to Japan and won 11 fights in a row in kind of uh, amazing fashion. But there was a real sense in the sport that he had done that to avoid drug testing, basically. And then he comes back to the US. He's in the strike force heavyweight Grand, Grand Prix he wins his opening round fight, which was kind of a snoozer against Fabricio Verdum. And then he has maybe the most advantageously timed foot injury of all of all time to get out of the Strike Force Grand Prix. And then the next thing you know, he signed with the UFC. So Alistair Overeem kind of jumped ship to sign with the UFC. It was easy to think of him as a villain, I think, back in those days, just because, you know, he looked like he was going to go down as one of the most obvious performance enhancing drug users in the sport. And especially after he tested positive in the wake of that Lesnar victory, it seemed like that was going to be the last word on Alistair Overeem, like how we would remember him. And yet, you know, uh, nine or 10 years later, I find myself looking at Alistair Overeem thinking, you know what, at this stage in the game, I actually find Alistair Overeem to be quite likable. And I don't know that I can explain that in any way other than to say it's kind of a joy to see him like not only mature, as I said, into this elder statesman role, but also to be going out there in the cage and and seemingly doing doing it and finding success with slightly different tools. Like he's not this guy who's just going to run you over anymore like he used to be. He's a smart fighter who's going to weather the storm and chip away and use his kind of experience and his all-around game to nab wins here and there, which is, is I don't know, man. It seems like Alistair Overeem has, has become a person that I find easy to like, which surprises me. Yeah, and I think you do have to give him credit because like you said, when he became Uberim, and underwent an entire physical transformation from being the skinny, light heavyweight kid to being this monstrous heavyweight, just like traps coming out of his ears kind of heavyweight. Looked like a goddamn action figure walking around. And it was really hard not to look at that and go, okay, 
that's not just horse meat and uh, knowing where the weights are kept. There's something else going on there. And then when he showed up in the UFC, had that that positive test, and then when he came back from that and looked physically different and had two straight knockout losses after that, it started to go like, well, okay. Everything that was really great about Alistair Overeem came out of a, a syringe, and that was the prevailing narrative. But especially now, like you see him in this later stage of his career where he is not – I mean he's still physically a really good athlete and a really good fighter and big guy who can really make that weight work on you when he wants to. But he is getting it done differently these days. He's getting it done more with craft than he is just by being an overwhelming physical force. And I think you have to really respect the, the guy's ability to to change and to evolve as you know his body changes, as the sport changes, as time goes on, and everything. There's not a whole lot of people that can really do that. And uh, we've seen a lot of heavyweights who hang around, even if they're just garbage heavyweights by the end. And he's not that. And to to see somebody being able to, to stick around and still compete at that level in this sport is is pretty rare. And so. I think you're right that our perception of him has changed just by like sheer repetition of him showing up over and over and over again and, and doing this stuff. At a certain point, even if you can still knock him for past PED use and, and some of that other stuff, you've got to respect what he's been able to do over such a long period of time. Yeah, no, I agree. All right, let's talk about Walt Harris for a few minutes here before we move on to round number two. Like, clearly, if you are an MMA fan, you are probably aware of the the story of Walt Harris's stepdaughter, Anaya Blanchard, being abducted and murdered in the fall. Uh, and this was Walt Harris's return to the cage for the first time since that happened. This fight against Alistair Overeem had been scheduled for December. I think originally they were supposed to go do it in Portland, Oregon at this fight night event, but it got postponed. And then clearly you had the pandemic. So it ended up getting kicked down the road a few times here. And they finally meet up uh, this past weekend in Jacksonville on ESPN and as the the main attraction the main event of this of this card we talked on the power hour a little bit Ben about how striking it was to see this terrible like unthinkable nightmarish family tragedy the the, the biggest nightmare for any parent uh to see this played out so publicly and to be used essentially as the the central uh promotional like signpost of this event was was Walt Harris returning from this tragedy and like on one hand, I feel like you got to kind of give the UFC credit for it because we do knock them uh, at times when it seems like they are choosy about which facts they present during their live broadcast. They've been known to leave some storylines out when they're trying to tell the story of a fight. So they took on this Walt Harris story head on. Walt Harris was clearly super open about it. He he didn't seem to have a problem talking about it. Paul, or I'm sorry, Tom Rinaldi, who's a, a well-known Journalist from ESPN did a, a big Sports Center feature on this story for for ESPN leading into this event, and yet, like you turn on the TV, maybe uh, as the Saturday event in this weird week long uh, stretch of pandemic events, and and it's it can be kind of hard to watch to see this terrible gruesome story played out. If you watched the entire UFC card, kind of again and again, it just came, you know they they repeated it and repeated it. So like I don't know, man, what did you feel about uh, having this Walt Harris tragedy used so ubiquitously during this event? Yeah, yeah, I felt complicated about it. Yeah. I guess 
like we talked about a little bit on Friday, on one hand, you're right. Like this is part of the story. It's definitely going to be part of Wal Harris's story. It's definitely part of his story and and coming back to fight right now. And it's there's no way that he's not going to be thinking about it. And if he's willing to talk about it and he's willing to tell that story, then you should tell that story. And maybe it was just that the repetition of it, how it seemed like it was all over, all over fight week. And also that we're so used to the way the UFC can do this, the way the UFC can seize on some kind of aspect of a narrative. And that becomes the story of what this fight is, what this fight is about, and the subtext, why you should watch it. Here's the story that you should become personally invested in that's going to make you care about this fight and its outcome. And so here's why you should be in your seat at you know 10 p.m. or whatever when the fight turns on. And I get like it's hard not to then view it through that lens because we're so used to this being just a way that the UFC sells us fights. And if telling the story of the murder of his stepdaughter is the way you're selling us this fight, that's kind of gross. But if we see it as this is just accurate journalism about what's actually happening with the guy and and what this guy has been through and what he is still going through and and what is going to be on his mind as he prepares for this fight and afterwards, then it seems like, how do you not tell it? And so I don't, something about just where you're inundated with it, that felt a little bit much at times, but then I also have to recognize that they have to make this stuff. They can't make it assuming that everybody who watches the fight or who may watch the fight is going to have seen every single thing that they did. Like they, you know, when fight night comes, they're going to feel like, okay, we got to re-air that thing or we got to re-air it before so that people know that when it's coming up and, and, and I get it. And so that's why I guess, I, I mean, I'm not going to condemn it and be like, okay, that you guys went over the top with this stuff. Um, but it also, it doesn't feel just like a normal thing where it's like, this guy used to be a janitor and now he's a fighter and now he has a big opportunity and here you go. Or like this guy's fighting, you know, his, his single mom raised him and they had a hard upbringing and everything. And now here he is and he's going to buy her a house or something like it feels different than that. Definitely. Um, but I guess the, the, the real pivot for me, like the, the pivotal part of it for me is if Walt Harris was okay with it, if he felt like it was a, it was appropriate and it was a, the, the amount of tension paid to it and everything was fine, then, then okay. I think that that makes a big difference. It did though, create a weird dynamic in this fight because you put him in this fight with Alistair Overeem, who, as we've just spent a few minutes talking about, is a tough out. Even closing on his 40th birthday, that's a tough dude to fight. And you go in there in this empty arena in Jacksonville to fight Alistair goddamn Overeem. And it kind of puts Overeem in a situation where does anybody outside of his immediate circle want to see him win? Like it's like the anti feel good moment when Overeem pulls off a kind of amazing comeback. To come back and win that fight, and the after all the stuff you've done, like all the, the all the pre-fight hype has kind of just been about all the stuff Walt Harris has been through. It's hard for it then to not feel like, well, real life does not give a shit about what you've been through or your sadness or anything like that. Like real life will crush you, which maybe just at, at this particular time, at this particular stage in our pandemic lives, felt a little too real. And it, I don't know it. It almost makes you wonder, man, why don't you put Walt Harris up against a tomato can that he can just run through? You put him up against Overeem? Jesus. Like that's – you're not really setting us up for a happy ending. Yeah, ultimately I think we were reminded about the cruelty of of athletics at some point, right? This isn't a movie. This isn't a book. This isn't scripted like pro wrestling is. This is a, a an actual athletic competition and sometimes it doesn't turn out the way – 
the storybooks would would have it turn out. Uh, but I agree with you that I think you have to give all the credit in the world to Walt Harris, not only for just returning to have this fight, but also being uh, such a class act all the way through this thing, like very open and honest about all of the, the trials and tribulations that he had been through, the pain and all of that. And then upon losing to, to Alistair Overeem, like doesn't really bat an eye and, and comes out the next day and, and gives the statement, you know, that he'll be back better than ever and all that and all that. And like you, you believe him, like he's, he's the kind of guy who you think is going to, is going to actually be good to that statement, good to that word. So I agree with you. I think as long as he was okay with all of this, I'm okay with it too. And, uh, you know, our, our hearts go out to the guy really just because he's been through so much. And then, uh, he seemed like he handled it all with, with such class and grace. So nice to see actually from both over him and yeah, Walt uh, Harris in say. a, a tough putting, situation. Yeah. Putting over him in an awkward situation there, he handled it as well as anybody possibly could like immediately after that stop. And she's consoling Walt Harris and saying, we should train together, which uh, honestly, if you're Walt Harris, Maybe you should train without. I bet Alistair Overeem has a lot of tricks and a lot of veteran savvy that he can help give you to help round out your game. Uh, but yeah, I, that's a tough situation to be in, and he did as much with it and handled it as well as anybody possibly could. Yeah. Uh, all right. Well, let's do. Are you fucking kidding me, Ben? And then we'll move on to round number two, Ben. What What's your Are you fucking kidding me this week? Well, you mentioned the uh, Dante Almeida's uh, Rodrigo Nascimento fight. Did you see this quote the UFC circulated afterwards from Rodrigo Nascimento? No, I did not. I will read it to you now. This is after uh, Nascimento uh, gets the rear naked choke submission victory in round two. Quote, our game plan was always try to put pressure on him, take him down and make him make a mistake, which he did. And I was there to capitalize. The message was very clear. I'm here. I have variety. And if you don't train jujitsu, you will die. Are you no. fucking kidding me? I'm terrified. <laughs> Chad, do you train jujitsu? Because if you don't, you'll die. I mean, you'll die either way. Like yeah. eventually. Sooner or later, gonna you're, you're, you're going to die. But if apparently if you don't train jujitsu and you encounter Rodrigo Nascimento, you may die a whole lot sooner. Yeah. Fucking kidding me? Fucking kidding me? Well, Ben, here's how you squander a lot of goodwill. Uh, Marlon Chito Vera who came into UFC on ESPN eight, riding a five fight win streak gets a, the biggest chance. I think of this streak here to go up against song. Yudong dong uh, in the curtain jerker of the actual television broadcast, put up a great fight, looked terrific. A lot of people thought he was about to win this thing. Song Yudong ultimately merges with the unanimous decision. Our hearts of course are with Marlon Vera on this one. We think he probably deserved to get the win. Here's what he tweeted. After this event. Now, Marlon Vera is from Ecuador, I believe. So we're working in a second language here. I should say that uh, from the jump. But here's what he tweets. I don't lost the fight to the China man. I lost to the judges tonight. All my hard work to the fucking drain. I can't believe this horse shit tonight. You fucking kidding me, Cheeto? Uh, the China man? Come on, bruh. Not the preferred nomenclature, dude. That is not the preferred nomenclature. We got to be better than that. You fucking kidding me? Fucking kidding me? That's going to do it for round number one. We'll be right back. Round number two. Chad, as we said at the top, 
We did a lot of living in the past week or so. The UFC squeezed three events into eight days, I believe about 32 total fights, all amid a pandemic. And Dana White declares that it was a success in every possible measure. And most importantly, according to Dana White, nobody is sick. It was successful. (laughs) The wind whispers Jacare, but here's his quote. Uh, I'm happy to have it behind me. I wanted this week to be over. Successful in every way it could be successful. I feel great about it. More importantly, nobody is sick. Nobody is sick. Nobody has gotten sick. Hopefully that's the case. There's no guarantees in life, but hopefully that's the case, and we all go home. It was a great event. It was a great week. Now, we should note here that Jacare Souza and his two cornermen did test positive for COVID-19 uh, just before UFC 249 and had to leave the host hotel and were told to like go isolate, basically. Uh, now, people will point out Jacare probably got it, I believe, from his wife. Is that what he said? A, a family member he said he had been in contact with. Cornerman probably got it from Jacare. But you did have them walking around all week in your host hotel the UFC said that they were self-isolating and all that all week, but then we saw a video of Jacare, albeit with a mask and gloves on, but still hanging out, smoking and joking with other fighters, uh, yucking it up with Fabricio Verdum and stuff like that. So he was out and about, and his cornermen, we don't know who they interacted with or anything. And it also seems too soon. Seems a little premature to be taking a victory lap on it, just because of, with stuff like incubation period and asymptomatic carriers and things maybe you don't know yet whether it was a success in every possible way and whether nobody has gotten sick like it's it's entirely possible that people do come down with it and that we do have cases that come out of this later on we just don't know yet. it's just it's entirely too soon to say that for sure but Assuming that the UFC's health and safety protocols, both as written down and as actually practiced, which as we've seen are two different kind of things here, the way we've seen this all go down, the the empty arenas, the the pros and the cons of that, all the cornermen around there with masks, which they'll wear on pretty much every part of their faces except for where it's supposed to go, all that kind of stuff. If we're looking at this past week and we're going, this is what pandemic MMA looks like. This is how it can happen, and it can be done reasonably safely, and we might be doing it for you know, maybe all summer, the, the foreseeable future right now. What do you feel about that? Do you feel like, okay, if this is our new normal, we'll just we'll get into it. It'll be okay. We can keep going forward this way, and as long as we don't see a huge like, outbreak of cases, this is manageable. Yeah, I guess I feel slightly more confident about it than I felt headed into the week. I mean, you can't call it a grand slam home run because three people did, in fact, get COVID-19. So you're running a, a one person per event average at this point. But it all it all happened, you know, right before that that first event, Jacare Souza and his two cornermen, you were able to get them get them out of there. Uh, we do, as you said, we do know that the health and safety protocols maybe weren't followed exactly to the letter. They clearly changed some stuff on the fly. And it might be a little bit premature to declare this thing a, a, a huge victory since we won't know for a couple of weeks whether or not there was any additional spread of the coronavirus throughout these three events. But I would say that at this moment, if you did have to make a statement, it seems like the UFC was reasonably successful at putting off putting on these three events. And I think that other people were watching. I mean, 
you can't maybe draw an exact line between it, but it's hard not to see the see the relationship between the UFC putting on these three events and then uh, NFL training facilities announcing in places that they're going to open and the NHL kind of trying to put together a plan to get back to action and Major League Baseball, albeit uh, one that is, you know, in the negotiations that are going to be hampered by trying to negotiate with owners and, and the Players Association. But like everybody seems like they're trying to get a plan now to get back, whether or not that represents a positive change or a feasible change. We don't know yet. But like, yeah, the, the UFC went down to Jacksonville and, and did three events and uh, only three people got sick. We, it doesn't seem like we had a huge spike of cases there. So we'll see. We'll see how that plays out. But like at the same time, man. I don't know if you're the UFC that you can kind of blow your trumpet about having a home run or having nobody got sick because clearly people did get sick. And like for Dana White to kind of take this victory lap, which was not unexpected given what we know about him. But like uh, I don't know that anyone was ever really doubting that the UFC could do three events in Jacksonville with some additional safety protocols. You know, we all kind of figured that that would that that would probably happen. Uh, it was the other stuff about trying to put on an event that you were going to regulate yourself out in California that we thought was not a great idea. And looking at the safety protocols, even once you did move to Florida, I think we looked at it and thought, oh, this seems hard to enforce. And then it was hard to enforce. So like, I don't know, man, I don't think the critics were wrong, but I also don't think that the UFC was completely uh, insane to think that it could do these three events. Now we're going to move back over maybe to Las Vegas, maybe to Arizona. And we, we got a couple more fight cards coming up. So it seems like we are going to press forward with all this. Like the UFC definitely wants to get back to business as usual. And like moving forward, it feels uh, slightly more feasible that they can, that they can get it done. But Hey man, let's also be honest. Like not all those safety protocols were followed to the letter. And the fact that I think more people or that we haven't found out about any more people getting coronavirus up to this point seems more like happenstance or chance than it was like the UMC having an airtight system. Yeah, it does seem like when you're watching some of this stuff go on and you're just thinking about this many people coming in and out, like all having to fly into Jacksonville. From, you know, some of them could drive, but most of them had to fly in there uh, and then fly back home and you know go to the hospital afterwards. Like you go through a fight like Darren Elkins had, you're probably going to have to go to the hospital afterwards. Uh, stuff like that. You can see all the different potential for introducing the virus into that environment, and then it kind of goes crazy. It does seem like you're relying on some good luck to some extent. Do you have what's your level of confidence that if people do start popping up positive after they go home, do you think we'll hear about it? Like the UFC would seem to have an incentive to keep that quiet, but also like is the UFC in contact with these people and telling them like okay. Hey, when you go home, like we saw in the the agreement that it made people sign where it's telling them like basically you need to be prepared to stay away from anybody for four weeks after your fight. We know the fighters probably aren't going to do that. And do you think that the UFC has such an incentive to keep that stuff quiet that unless it, somebody's you know mom dies or something like that or it gets serious in, in a really bad way for somebody in their family – do you think we end up hearing anything more about it? Like, hey, two weeks from now, is everybody still okay? Was it still a great success? Yeah, I mean, it feels like we've found out about most stuff so far, right? True. <laughs> like we had we had some instances where the UFC outwardly came out in the media and said, we're not going to tell you what we're going to do. We're not going to tell you where we're going. We're not going to tell you what our plan is. We may not even tell you who's going to be there. 
And up to this point, it feels like the media has been able to to divine most of those secrets to get most of that information out there. And again, you're dealing you're dealing with a very widespread, very diverse population of athletes. Uh, you know, you might be able to to throw a, a lid over some of it, but like, I don't know, man. Like, we'll we will we'll find out. I think if anything super serious happens, and God forbid someone dies, we would certainly find out about that. But uh, yeah, like I don't know if you can keep all this stuff secret. You might be able to. Uh, to uh, cover some stuff, you might be able to 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 keep quiet on some things, but like I don't know, that's not even really in your best interests. I don't think if you're the UFC, so uh, I, I feel like we will find stuff out one way or another. Well, lastly, I mean, now that we've seen what it looks like and what the actual viewing experience is like, I feel like there are some pros and cons to the empty yeah. arena. But honestly, at this point, I'm tempted to say that the pros outweigh the cons. You lose a little bit of the energy. You don't have that same kind of crowd pop when somebody comes through the curtain or the introductions and everything, and that, that big fight feeling that comes from the crowd all you know, gathering in, in one big voice to get excited about some moment, especially in a reaction to a knockout, a bad knockout, especially like Francis Ngannou's. It seems eerie and scary when it's yeah. just met with total silence afterwards. So there's that. But I'm going to tell you, man, when somebody gets kicked in the balls and there's no booing at them for taking a couple seconds to recover before they jump right back in there, I don't hate that. I, I haven't heard anybody woo obnoxiously in what feels like a long time. I don't hate that. Being able to hear the corners, being able to hear like every single strike that lands and telling the difference between something that really lands hard and something that's just a glancing blow, I don't hate that either. I, I think that there's a lot to like about that. Yeah, it's a definitely a way more focused environment just from like a spectator standpoint, uh, which which I do like. I like being able to hear from the corners when they're giving instructions, like even during the rounds. I like to be able to hear the the strategy and kind of the stuff they're saying. Uh, and the intensity, while the intensity is not the same as if you would have a live crowd there, like the intensity is just kind of different. Like when when people are walking out for a big fight particularly the three main events this week, you know, uh, starting with Tony Ferguson versus Justin Gaethje and ending with Alistair Overeem against Walt Harris. It's still intense. Like these, you see these guys walking out in through this deserted arena and I don't feel like it loses any intensity. I feel like it's just different. It just feels like they're walking out to have a fight in a parking lot or something. Uh, so it just like takes on a slightly different feel. And like, I feel like it really also, uh, I don't know if tests is the right word, but like prevent presents the, the uh, professionalism of the fighters There's, you know, like, okay, this is my job. I'm going to go fight this guy, even though like nobody's watching uh, and I'm going to approach it the exact same way and I'm not going to get rattled by it. And I'm going to go out there and put on a product that at least to my mind up to this point appears to, you know, be very similar to the product we had before. So there are, yeah, there's a lot of things that I like about it. I would say like the only time that, not having the live crowd there feels like a detriment is when you get into a really bad fight or when yeah. you get into a uh, a fight that's hard to watch, like Glover Tashira, Anthony Smith. Like that's one of the only times this week where I was watching it where I was like, man, this actually just feels weird because there's no crowd there. And so, but most of the time I would say like, yeah, I was, I was largely in favor of it. Hashtag we'll watch again. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. All right, well, that's going to do it for round number two. Where's this all headed? That's what we'll talk about in round number three. That starts right now. All right, Ben. Well, let me tell you 
first of all, what is on the docket in terms of announced bouts for the upcoming UFC Fight Night 176, scheduled for May 30th, and then UFC 250, which is scheduled for June the 6th. We have four bouts that have been announced for UFC Fight Night 176. Uh, Kidson Abreu versus uh, Jamal Hall-Hill. Nailed it. Uh, Mackenzie Dern versus Hannah Cyphers. Augusto Sakai versus Blago Ivanov. And Tyron Woodley versus Gilbert Burns. Then over at UFC 250, uh, featherweight championship bout, Amanda Nunes versus Felicia Spencer, Juicy A. Formiga versus Alex Perez, Devin Clark versus Alonzo Menafield, Gerald Mearshart versus Ian Heinish, and Charles, Charles Bird uh, versus Maki Patolo. So uh, not anything close to full fight cards at this point, publicly released to the for either of these two upcoming events. On top of that, we don't know where these are going to be. The UFC Fight Night 176 was originally scheduled for May 23rd to be at the Vistar Veterans Memorial Arena in Jacksonville, but they've moved that plan. They've postponed it to May the 30th, and at this point, it seems like it will either be at the Apex Arena in Las Vegas, or Dana White has said it might take place in Arizona since professional sports uh, have been allowed to return since May 15th there. We just talked in round number two about some of the realities of watching the fights that we've already seen amid the pandemic. What about the fights we have yet to see? What about where this goes next? What do you expect to see from the UFC over these next two events? And what is your feeling about the chance that we get into a more or less regular schedule for the rest of the year? Yeah, I got to admit it was a little bit weird to go to the UFC website to look at their future event schedule and see UFC 250 TBD versus TBD. Saturday, June 6th. That's what it says right there on the website. You're going, okay, you guys you guys know that's coming up pretty quickly here, right? Maybe we want to sort that stuff out. And that is going to kind of be a question, especially for these next few events, because as we've talked about before, you could run out of available fighters sooner than you think. When you're trying to do so many events, you're trying to kind of catch up a little bit. But also, you don't have your full roster available for a variety of reasons. Like, you know, you have some people, like some international fighters, who can't get into the U.S. right now. And unless you have the Fight Island up and running, you can't really get out anywhere else other than the U.S. to host some of these events. But then also, you know, you got some people who maybe just don't want to fight during a pandemic or aren't able to or aren't able to train, that kind of stuff. Like, There's a lot of reasons that it might restrict your roster a little bit. And it seems, especially since the UFC has an incentive to make sure that it keeps churning out some events, you could very easily get yourself into a situation where it's just a lot of red corner versus blue corner kind of fights. And it feels like a lot of filler rather than really good stuff. Yeah. And I, up to this point, I've been somewhat surprised to see fighters, maybe not surprised is the right word, but many of the fighters on these cards have spoken highly of this experience that like they, uh, not only did they want to fight, but they seemed to uh, relish the idea of these sort of short notice fights, maybe a truncated training camp, maybe not quite as much time to psych yourself out or to like over game plan or over train. It seems like uh, there's a freedom of sorts in terms of like showing up, throwing caution to the wind and letting the chips fall where they may in terms of like a short notice fight, which uh, I guess as an athlete, I could see that kind of be in the uh, like an easy thing to to 
to give yourself over to. And then I guess there's the other side of the coin where I think you're going to come out of this with a lot of people feeling like maybe they didn't prepare the way that they would have in under normal circumstances. But this seems to be the situation we're in. It seems like it's going to be maybe the new normal for a long time moving forward. So I guess we, we will all embrace it to the extent that we can while we have uh, professional sports around. There's no guarantee that you know any of this stuff is going to work out over the long term. We don't know what the the health effects will be of having these these events return more or less to normal, but but here we are, and so uh, I'm interested to see if we wind up at the apex or if we're down there in Arizona. But we still have you know somewhere between eight and nine fights to book for both of these upcoming cards, and nobody on the on the docket yet. So I guess you you know you you probably have a very good chance of seeing a lot of uh, either West Coast or Las Vegas or Arizona fighters show up on these cards just in the same way you did last week that a lot of, uh, you know, South Southern United States or Florida area fighters showed up on those three fight cards as well. Yeah. I mean, maybe this is a good time to break into the UFC. If you're a, uh, domestic MMA fighter with a good record and you've been waiting for the call for a while, or maybe this is how Angela Hill ends up fighting three more times before the summer's over. Yeah, well, she's already out there saying she wants to fight on the next one, right? She absolutely is. You know, and I saw her making a fair point when, uh, you know, she was saying she felt like she deserved to win that fight, but, uh, you know, give me another one, I'll carve up another one of your girls, that kind of stuff. And uh, I saw people on the internet doing the thing that they'll do where they're like, hey, stop crying about losing a decision, get over it. And she's like, hang on and tell me to get over it when I'm out here asking for another fight already. Fair point, Angela Hill. Yeah, no, uh, uh, absolutely, absolutely. Uh, are we going to – I the, the UFC appeared to make a bunch of money on UFC 249 if the buy rate is, is accurate that, we, that we've got. It seems like they are dead set on getting to their 42 events to also get their, their annual licensing fee uh, from ESPN for putting all up that that's contractually amounted – amount or contract, contractually stipulated number of events. Do we get there or what derails this moving forward, Ben, or are we back? Are we on track with, you know, smooth sailing ahead? The only thing that I could see that would really derail it. Well, two things, I guess it's entirely possible that by the time we get to the fall and early winter, like the late portion of this year, maybe this virus just comes raging back in a major way all across America and you know the world frankly like that's when you look at the history with the uh, uh, 1918 and 1919 uh, flu pandemic that that's kind of what happened there so it's entirely a lot of the experts are saying that we'll be in this cycle of opening up and closing back down until we get a vaccine and that could be a while so that's one thing that could really mess with your plans the other thing is if you know, you try to jump back into your regular event schedule. You keep telling us all your safety measures are fine and everything. But then a few weeks later, we realize you've got outbreaks all over the place. That basically, you know, not only did it spread around at your events, but then you sent people home and it spread around there. Like, that's the kind of worst case scenario. And God, you really hope that doesn't happen. Like, not just because of, you know, it'd be bad for the individuals involved it'd be bad for kind of just the sport overall a a lot of people who don't care about mma you know 50 weeks out of the year are going to run stories about how the ufc uh, spawned a bunch of outbreaks it would be terrible you really really hope that that doesn't happen but if something like that happens on any kind of scale that could really mess with your plans other than that though if that doesn't happen and if we don't see a huge 
uh, resurgence in the fall, it seems like the UFC is going to do everything in its power to get back on track and make that money. Like that's the one thing it knows. And they, yeah. so far it's, it's shown that it, it can and will do that. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, let's do uh, just saying stuff, Ben, and then we will get out of here for this week, Ben. Uh, not that I want to keep going back to the Anaya Blanchard story or what happened with Walt Harris uh, this week and, and you know, the, the tragedy that has beset his family since last fall. But did you see a bunch of people get mad at MMA Junkie this past week for using the word slain in a headline? I did not. To refer to uh, Anaya Blanchard. Yeah, I believe it was Simon Samano, the... Uh, the managing editor over there at MMA Junkie uh, wrote this headline that where she he referred to uh, Anaya Blanchard as as the slain stepdaughter. Walt Harris, here's the headline. Walt Harris says UFC return hinged on slain stepdaughter Anaya Blanchard answering prayer. Uh, a bunch of people got really mad about that, and they uh, they put, pitched a fuss about it over on social media. And I guess this week I'm just saying, man, you guys don't know what words mean, man. There's there's nothing wrong with the word slain. There's no negative connotation to it. There's no uh, pejorative way to take it. It just means someone who has been killed. What what was their objection? That they felt like uh, saying slain was a negative or like it was a, a pejorative term somehow that that uh, maybe it sensationalized the the story or, or something to, uh, to that effect. I don't understand it fully, to be honest with you, because that's there's nothing to it. That just makes no sense to me. Yep. People don't know what words mean, man. People who don't know what words mean should maybe not be the ones to complain about word usage. Well, you I'm said it. Saying. You said it right there, didn't you? Well, Chad, my just hands up this week. Did you see that NASCAR is coming back? Yeah, we just talked about it. I've, I've you know, they're not going to slip a NASCAR race under in underneath my radar. You know that. Yeah, no, I know you're a big NASCAR. Now you would think NASCAR here's a sport where you ought to be able to do it because. You're all in cars for the most part. I mean, I know you got to pull off and do the pit crew thing where the guys go rrr, 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 with the little guns and they get the tires off and they, they do all the stuff and wipe your windows down like it's a gas station and then you jet off again. Uh, those guys, you know, yeah, they got to worry about it a little bit. But everybody else, they're in cars. You've got to think stuff like this, stuff like golf, the, the kind of sports that could very safely come back and it wouldn't be a huge deal. However, NASCAR says they will not be doing coronavirus tests. This is a quote from a USA Today story on it. The NASCAR vice president of racing operations, John Bobo, awesome name. Uh, Those tests remain in short supply. Getting results can take two to three days. Really, those tests should be targeted for people most in need. I'm just saying, maybe as different sports come back, we're going to see a lot of different ways to do this. A lot of different approaches to stuff like health and safety. Also, maybe as a point they made on uh, last week tonight, on HBO with John Oliver, maybe these are going to be the times when it's going to make a big difference, whether your sport has a players association or some kind of uh, athletes union, because if you don't, you might not even get to be involved in these decisions about how and when and and where to come back. Just saying. Just saying. That's going to do it for this week's co-main event podcast. Remember, we will be back all this week over on the CME Patreon page Wednesday for the live chat at the movie club featuring the nice guys and then back again on Friday 
for another co-main event podcast, Patreon Power Hour. Check us out over there if you would. As for right now, though, we are done. We are through. We are out. See, we, we, uh, our headline showed up on John Oliver. Yeah. There you go. Not bad. Not bad at all. Pretty good placement if you can get it. All right, I'll let this shit upload.